Section 11 of The Myths of the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Myths and Legends of New England by Daniel Brinton. Chapter 4 Symbols of the Bird and the Serpent. Part 2. It is well known that in ancient art this animal was the symbol of Esculapius, and to this day, Professor Agassiz found that the Mayuis Indians, who live between the Upper Tepejaz and Madeira Rivers in Brazil, whenever they assign a form to any remedio, give it that of a serpent. Probably this notion that it was annually rejuvenated led to its adoption as a symbol of time among the Aztecs, or perchance, as they reckoned by suns and the figure of the sun, a circle corresponds to nothing animate but a serpent with its tail in its mouth, eating itself, as it were, this may have been its origin. Either of them is more likely than that the symbol arose from the recondite reflection that time is never-ending, still beginning, still creating, still destroying, as has been suggested. Only, however, within the last few years has the significance of the serpent symbol in its length and breadth been satisfactorily explained and its frequent recurrence accounted for. By a searching analysis of Greek and German mythology, Dr. Schwartz of Berlin has shown that the meaning which is paramount to all others in this emblem is the lightning, a meaning drawn from the close analogy which the serpent in its motion, its quick spring, and mortal bite, has to the zigzag course, the rapid flash, and sudden stroke of the electric discharge. He even goes so far as to imagine that by this resemblance the serpent first acquired the veneration of men. But this is an extravagance not supported by more thorough research. He has further shown, with great aptness of illustration, how, by its dread effects, the lightning, the heavenly serpent, became the god of terror and the opponent of such heroes as Beowulf, St. George, Thor, Perseus, and others, mythical representations of the fearful war of the elements in the thunderstorm. How, from its connection with the advancing summer and fertilizing showers, it bore the opposite character of the deity of fruitfulness, riches, and plenty. How, as occasionally kindling the woods where it strikes, it was associated with the myths of the descent of fire from heaven, and as in popular imagination, where it falls, it scatters the thunderbolts in all directions, the flintstones, which flash when struck, were supposed to be these fragments, and gave rise to the stone worship so frequent in the old world. And how finally the prevalent myth of a king of serpents crowned with a glittering stone or wearing a horn is but another type of lightning. Without accepting unreservedly all these conclusions, I shall show how correct they are in the main when applied to the myths of the new world, and thereby illustrate how the red race is of one blood and one faith with our own remote ancestors in heathen Europe and Central Asia. It asks no elaborate effort of the imagination to liken the lightning to a serpent. It does not require any remarkable acuteness to guess the conundrum of Schiller. Unter allen Schlingen ist ein auf Erden nicht gazut mit der und schnell kein anwurth sich kein when Father Buteau was a missionary among the Algonquins, 
in 1637, he asked them their opinion of the nature of lightning. It is an immense serpent, they replied, which the Manito is vomiting forth. You can see the twists and folds that he leaves on the trees, which he strikes, and underneath such trees we have found huge snakes. Here is a novel philosophy for you, exclaims the father. So the Shawnees called the thunder the hissing of the great snake, and Tlaloc, the Toltec thunder-god, held in his hand a serpent of gold to represent the lightning. For this reason the Caribs spoke of the god of the thunderstorm as a great serpent dwelling in the fruit forests, and, in the Quiche legends, other names, for Huracan, the hurricane or thunderstorm, are the strong serpent, he who hurls below, referring to the lightning. Among the Hurons, in 1648, the Jesuits found a legend current that there existed somewhere a monster serpent called Uniote, who wore on his head a horn that pierced rocks, trees, hills, in short, everything he encountered. Whoever could get a piece of his horn was a fortunate man, for it was a sovereign charm and bringer of good luck. The Hurons confessed that none of them had had the good hap to find the monster and break his horn, nor indeed had they any idea of his whereabouts. But their neighbors, the Algonquins, furnished them at times small fragments for a large consideration. Clearly the myth had been taught them for venal purposes by their trafficking visitors. Now among the Algonquins, the Shawnee tribe did more than all others combined to introduce and carry about religious legends and ceremonies. From the earliest times they seem to have had peculiar aptitude for the ecstasies, deceits, and fancies that made up the spiritual life of their associates. Their constantly roving life brought them in contact with the myths of many nations, and it is extremely probable that they first brought the tale of the horned serpent from the Creeks and Cherokees. It figured extensively in the legends of both these tribes. The latter related that once upon a time, among the glens of their mountains, dwelt the prince of rattlesnakes. Obedient subjects guarded his palace, and on his head glittered, in place of a crown, a gem of marvellous magic virtues. Many warriors and magicians tried to get possession of this precious talisman, but were destroyed by the poisoned fangs of its defenders. Finally, one more inventive than the rest hit upon the bright idea of encasing himself in leather and by this device marched unharmed through the hissing and snapping court, tore off the shining jewel, and bore it in triumph to his nation. They preserved it with religious care, brought it forth on state occasions with solemn ceremony, and about the middle of the last century, when Captain Timberlake penetrated to their towns, told him its origin. The charm which the Creeks presented their young men when they set out on the warpath was of very similar character. It was composed of the bones of the panther and the horn of the fabulous horned snake. According to a legend taken down by an unimpeachable authority toward the close of the last century, the great snake dwelt in the waters. The old people went to the brink and sang the sacred songs. The monster rose to the surface. The sages recommenced the mystic chants. He rose a little out of the water. Again they repeated the songs. This time he showed his horns, and they cut one off. Still a fourth time did they sing, and as he rose to listen, cut off the remaining horn. A fragment of these, in the war physic, protected from inimical arrows, 
and gave success to the conflict. In these myths, which attribute good fortune to the horn of the snake, that horn which pierces trees and rocks, which rises from the waters, which glitters as a gem, which descends from the ravines of the mountains, we shall not overstep the bounds of prudent reasoning, if we see the thunderbolt, sign of the fructifying rain, symbol of the strength of the lightning, horn of the heavenly serpent. They are strictly meteorological in their meaning, and when in later Algonquin tradition the hero, Micabo, appears in conflict with the shining prince of serpents, who lives in the lake, and floods the earth with its waters, and destroys the reptile with a dart, and further when the conqueror clothes himself with skins of his foe, and drives the rest of the serpents to the south, where in that latitude the lightnings are last seen in the autumn, or when in the traditional history of the Iroquois we hear of another great horned serpent rising out of the lake and preying upon the people until a similar hero-god destroys it with a thunderbolt. We cannot be wrong in rejecting any historical or ethical interpretation, and in construing them as allegories, which at first represented the atmospheric change which accompanied the advancing seasons and the ripening harvests, they are narratives conveying under agreeable personifications the tidings of that unending combat which the Dakotas said was being waged with varying fortunes by Unktahi against Wakion, the god of waters against the thunderbird. They are the same stories which in the old world have been elaborated into the struggles of Ormazd and Ariman, of Thor and Midgard, of St. George and the Dragon, and a thousand others. Yet it were but a narrow theory of natural religion that allowed no other meaning to these myths. Many another elemental warfare is being waged round us, and applications as various as nature herself lie in these primitive creations of the human fancy. Let it only be remembered that there was never any moral, never any historical purport in them in the infancy of religious life. In snake charming as a proof of proficiency in magic, and in the symbol of the lightning, which brings forth both fire and water, which in its might controls victory and war, and in its frequency, plenteous crops at home, lies the secret of the serpent symbol. As the war physic among the tribes of the United States was a fragment of a serpent, and as thus signifying his incomparable skill in war, the Iroquois represent their mythical king, Atitaro, clothed in nothing but black snakes, so that when he wished to don a new suit, he simply drove away one set, and ordered another to take their places. So, by a precisely similar mental process, the myth of the Nawa assigns as a mother to their war-god, Huitzilopochtli, Coatlicue, the robe of serpents, her dwelling-place, Coatepec, the hill of serpents. And at her lying in, say that she brought forth a serpent. Her son's image was surrounded by serpents. His scepter was in the shape of one. His great drum was of serpent skins, and his statue rested on four vermiform caryatides. As the symbol of the fertilizing summer showers, the lightning serpent was the god of fruitfulness. Born in the atmospheric waters, it was an appropriate attribute of the ruler of the winds. But we have already seen that the winds were often spoken of as great birds. Hence the union of these two emblems, in such names as Quetzalcoatl, Gukamats, Kukalkan, all titles of the god of the air, 
in the languages of Central America, all signifying the bird serpent. Here also we see the solution of that monument which has so puzzled American antiquaries, the cross at Palenque. It is a tablet on the wall of an altar representing a cross surmounted by a bird and supported by the head of a serpent. The latter is not well defined in the plate in Mr. Stevens' travels, but is very distinct in the photographs taken by Monsieur Charnay, which that gentleman was kind enough to show me. The cross I have previously shown was the symbol of the four winds, and the bird and serpent are simply the rebus of the air-god, their ruler. Quetzalcoatl, called also Holcuat, the rattlesnake, was no less intimately associated with serpents than with birds. The entrance to his temple at Mexico represented the jaws of one of these reptiles, and he finally disappeared in the province of Cozacoalco, the hiding-place of the serpent, sailing towards the east in a bark of serpent skins. All this refers to his power over the lightning serpent. He was also said to be the god of riches and the patron, consequently, of merchants. For with the summer lightning come the harvest and the ripening fruits, come riches and traffic. Moreover, the golden color of the liquid fire, as Lucretius expressed it, naturally led, where this metal was known, to its being deemed the product of the lightning. Thus originated many of those tales of a dragon who watches a treasure in the earth, and of a serpent who is the dispenser of riches, such as were found among the Greeks and ancient Germans. So it was in Peru, where the god of riches was worshipped, under the image of a rattlesnake, horned and hairy, with a tail of gold. It was said to have descended from the heavens in the sight of all the people, and to have been seen by the whole army of the Inca. Whether it was in reference to it, or as emblems of their prowess, that the Incas themselves chose as their arms two serpents with their tails interlaced, is uncertain possibly one for each of these significations. Because the rattlesnake, the lightning serpent, is thus connected with the food of man, and itself seems never to die, but annually to renew its youth, the Algonquins called it grandfather and king of snakes. They feared to injure it. They believed it could grant prosperous breezes, or raise disastrous tempests. Crowned with the lunar crescent, it was the constant symbol of life in their picture-writing and in the Meda, signs the mythical grandmother, of mankind, me suck come, me go qua, was indifferently represented by an old woman or a serpent. For like reasons, Kiwakotl, the serpent woman, in the myths of the Nawas, was also called Tonatzin, our mother. The serpent symbol in America has, however, been brought into undue prominence. It had such an ominous significance in Christian art, and one which chimed so well with the favorite proverb of the early missionaries, The gods of the heathens are devils, that wherever they saw a carving or picture of a serpent, they at once recognized the sign manual of the prince of darkness, and inscribed the fact in their notebooks as proof positive of their cherished theory. After going over the whole ground, I am convinced that none of the tribes of the red race attached to this symbol any ethical significance whatever, and that as employed to express atmospheric phenomena and the recognition of divinity in natural occurrences. It far more frequently typified what was favorable and agreeable than the reverse. End of chapter 4